now in the eighth chapter of John. Let me just call your attention to several things here that are very applicable. Now, it opens with this incident of the woman taken in adultery. Then after this, the pattern of John is followed. And that is, after an incident that he has, and here it is a sharp conflict with the religious rulers relative to this woman and what should be done with her. And then he entered into a discourse here, And in that discourse, they made certain sly, suggestive statements concerning him and his background. For instance, let me call your attention to what he says here in verse 33. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? And then the Lord Jesus came back at them and said in verse 38, I speak that which I have seen with my Father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your Father. Then they answer him and say, Abraham is our father. You see, they're questioning his birth, his background. In other words, it was the religious leaders of that day who denied the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus. And he said, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. Now he labels them. Verse 44, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he's a liar and the father of it. And then, finally, in verse 58, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Do you see what this conflict is all about? This is a woman taken in adultery. They claim that Christ was born as an illegitimate son. He was known yonder in Nazareth. There was a cloud that hung over his head, and he makes it very clear in Psalm 69, he was the song of the drunkards. In other words, the drunkards down at the corner saloon in Nazareth made up dirty little ditties about him and his mother. So we find that they questioned him relative to his background. Now he claims that God is his Father, and he is speaking of his heavenly Father, for he had no earthly Father. He was virgin-born, and he's claiming that in this particular passage, before Abraham was, I am. And that goes back to Micah, where Micah says that out of Bethlehem he'll come, and he says, unto us a child is born born. Unto us a son is given. The child is born yonder in Bethlehem, but the son of the heavenly Father, and that's his position in the Trinity, he comes out of eternity. And 
Here you have the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, the argument is not about shepherds and angels at Bethlehem and wise men. And it's not about the stable. That's not the important thing. And it's not a question of what time of the year he was born. When we get on subjects like that, we're dealing with carnal things. The question is, who is he? He still asks the question, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And there's still a difference of opinion. But we today can say with Simon Peter, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And friends, that's what Christmas is all about. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the little baby that's yonder on Mary's bosom could have called this world out of existence. Now, let's come to the incident here. Now, first of all, let me take a moment to call your attention to the fact that this incident that you have recorded here is not in the better manuscripts, or it's been put in brackets. And you will find that Westcott and Hart in their Greek text absolutely eliminate it, put it at the end. And then Nestle in his Greek text puts it in brackets. And you will find that in your Bible, probably you have a note on it. There's a note on it in the Schofield Reference Bible, the old Schofield and the new Schofield Reference Bible. Now the question arises, is John 8, 1 through 11 here, this incident of the woman taken in adultery, does it belong in the Word of God? And I want to take the position that it belongs in the Word of God, and I'll give you my reason for it. Now, the very fact it's in some manuscripts, of course, is interesting. How did it get there? And then why was it eliminated from other manuscripts, even some of the better ones? Well, I'll tell you my explanation of it is just simply this. In those early days, the scribes who copied out the Scripture, and you understand it was copied out by hand, there were no printing presses, and evidently some scribe came to this, and when he read it, he said, you know, this may teach adultery, this may teach sin. And having missed the entire point, why the thing that he did was to put it in brackets or move it over to the end of the gospel where you find it in some of the texts today. And I think that's the way that it got out of the original. I believe that this is part of the Gospel of John, and it's part of the inspired text, and I treat it that way. Now will you notice, and I shall begin reading now at chapter 8, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again unto the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. Now we have here a byplay that John gives that's quite interesting, and it gives a sidelight on our Lord during these last days yonder in Jerusalem. It says, the fact, the last chapter closed with, "...and every man went unto his own house." And by the way, that is part of this incident here 
and is excluded, as the entire incident here in the eighth chapter is excluded from some text. Now, I believe that this not only belongs here, but it gives a wonderful sidelight into our Lord. Every man went unto his own house. Been wonderful to have invited Jesus into some home. Somebody says, my, I tell you, they were cruel back there, but today we're more hospitable, are we? I wonder how many homes that the Lord Jesus is in today. I wonder if maybe Santa Claus doesn't occupy the main place in many. And the giving of gifts one to another, which I think, frankly, is a lovely custom. And the Christmas tree, if you worship it, of course, it would be wrong, but I don't think even the most pagan folk worship a Christmas tree. It's nice to have one. It comes out of paganism also. But may I say, these things are incidental. The important thing is, is Jesus welcome in your home today? Every man went to his own house in that day, and Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. That means he spent the night outside. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And that was the position of a teacher in that day, to sit down and speak. Now, will you notice? And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. And friends, I can't think of anything more crude and rude and brutal than what these religious rulers did. And friends, we've got a lot of Christians today, and I'm afraid some so-called fundamentalists that are just as crude, just as brutal, just as rude as these men were. Now, I want you to see the scene. Our Lord is sitting in the temple area, and he is teaching the people. Now we see quite a hullabaloo outside. It sounds like a rabble, and it is. Here come these religious rulers dragging this woman. She has disheveled hair, and she's defiant. You may be sure of that. And as they approach, why, the people naturally begin to turn and look, see what in the world is happening. And here they come, and they bring her right into the midst of where the Lord Jesus was teaching. They fling her right down on the ground there, and then they make this crude charge. This woman is taken in adultery in the very act. I want to say to you, as guilty as she is, and she's as guilty as sin... My Lord called what she did sin. He said, go and sin no more. It's sin. But the thing is, you know, there are different ways of handling things like this. This is brutal. This is cruel. May I say to you, and my judgment, these men are just as sorry as she is. And I think you'll see that right here. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? Now, you can't argue against that because the very fact that back in the book of Leviticus, which we've already studied, we saw that that was the law of Moses. And there's no way of toning it down. It says in Leviticus 20.10, And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, 
Even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. That's plain enough, isn't it? Now, will you notice this? She should be stoned, but what sayest thou? Now, you see, they're putting him on the horns of a dilemma. Will he contradict Moses, or will he now say something else? Will he offer some other explanation? This they said, now notice, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. In other words, they didn't do this because they wanted to stone this woman. They were not interested in stoning her. They were interested in stoning him, by the way. That was really the thing they were after, and our Lord knew that. Of course, he needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Notice what he did. Verse 6 now again, "...this they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Isn't that interesting? You see, what has happened is that they have flung this woman down in the midst there, and there she is, as defiant as she can be. And she might have used some four-letter words. I don't know. But I do know this, that with disheveled hair, there she is. And it's humiliation, it's embarrassment. Somebody says, well, she's guilty. So what? Is this the thing that should be done? And our Lord noticed this. He didn't look at her. He stooped down and began to write on the ground. Now, you know, that was an interesting thing that he did. Now, if you turn back to Jeremiah, the 17th chapter, at verse 13, you'd pick up something quite interesting. It says there, O Lord, the hope of Israel... All that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they've forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Now, who had forsaken the Lord? This woman? Yes, she had. But what about the religious rulers? So our Lord stooped down and wrote. What did he write? You know, this is the only occasion that he ever wrote anything. And... It was written in the sand there and was tramped out by the crowd. I've often wondered what he wrote, and I think that, frankly, friends, that he wrote something quite interesting, and I'm going to make a suggestion. He did not want to embarrass the woman. He just stooped down and wrote. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He still won't look at the woman. He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Now, why did he say that? Well, the Lord said in Jeremiah that those that have turned against God will be written on the earth. What's he writing down there? Well, I think that he wrote something like this. There was there an old Pharisee that when he was a young fellow, he went over at Corinth and he had quite a fling. And the girl's name, I don't know what it was, but our Lord knew when he wrote the name of the girl. And this old Pharisee got a look at it. He didn't know anybody knew that. And then there was another one of these scribes. He had left up in Galilee a girl that was pregnant, and he didn't marry her. 
And he didn't know anybody knew, and our Lord wrote the name of the girl there and his name with it. And he saw that. May I say to you, I think he went down the list there that day. And then he lifted up and he said, Now, if you're without sin, you go ahead and throw a stone. May I tell you, friends, I don't know about you, but that took me out of the stone-throwing business a long time ago. It'll take a lot of you out of the stone-throwing business also. And notice, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground again, because there's some more of them there. And you know what happened? And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even to the last. And an old Scotch commentator, he said, the elder ones, they went out first because they had more sense than the younger ones. The young ones hung around, and when they saw their name, they finally caught on, and they left also. So that actually... There's not but one person left there that can throw a stone at her, and that's Jesus. He could have thrown a stone at her. But notice, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, now he looked around, and this crowd of religious leaders, they've all left. You see, they weren't in a position to throw stones. What hypocrites they were. We still have this crowd with us today, by the way. And will you notice that? And when he saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Don't tell me our Lord didn't have a sense of humor. He says, Where are your accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Why, he heard all this noise and falter all that was going on, a mob... Now, nobody's there. It's all quiet. He says, why, isn't there some man to condemn thee? She said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. This one, who is the son of the virgin, who himself was under a cloud all of his life, in order that he might take your place and my place down here, He's going to the cross to cover even the sin of this woman. And friends, that's what he did. And neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Now, we have John following his usual format here. And his method was to give an incident or a miracle, and then after it, to give a discourse on that particular subject or in that particular field. Now, here the Lord Jesus in verse 12 says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, he makes the statement here, I am. And this I am occurs again and again. Back in the Old Testament, it was Jehovah, I am who I am. And very frankly, you're not told too much about God other than he is the self-existing one, that he has all wisdom, and that he has all power. But beyond that, we don't know too much about him. And the Lord Jesus came to this earth not only to redeem man, but to reveal God 
to man. And we find him in this gospel, I am. Back in the sixth chapter, in verse 35, he said, I am the bread of life. Here he says, I am the light of the world. And over in the tenth chapter, verse 9, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. And then in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. And then in chapter 11, verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. And then in the 15th chapter of John's gospel, I am the genuine vine. And then he goes on to say, I am the vine and ye are the branches. Now, this sheds a great deal of information on who God is. And he takes these tremendous things out there in the world. We find here that he takes the commonplace, like bread and light and water and those things, And he uses the commonplace to speak of the remarkable, the ordinary to speak of the extraordinary, and the physical to speak of the spiritual, and the temporal to speak of the eternal, and the here and now to speak of the here and the hereafter, and the earthly to speak of the heavenly, and the limited to speak of the unlimited, and the finite to speak of the infinite. Now we have here, he is the light of the world. And I suppose that this is probably the highest statement that he's made here when he said, I am the light of the world. You see, he's exposed the sin of the scribes and Pharisees who brought that woman. They were just as guilty, and they had to flee. And now he's forgiven the woman her sin. You see, he is the light. And he now proceeds to give a discourse on light. You see, Christ turned on the light. And sin and rats and bats and bedbugs cannot stand the light. That's the reason these scribes and Pharisees left. He is the light. This is the highest claim he's made so far in the Gospel of John. fact of the matter is, one of the definitions of God over in the epistle of 1 John is, God is light. That's the first definition. God is light. He's holy. He's righteous. And he's just. And I suppose light is one of the most complicated things of all. And it's certainly one of the essentials today. Life would be impossible without light. And you see about us today plenty of light, that is, physical light, and yet it's complicated. Who really knows what it is? You ask the next scientist you meet, and one of them will tell you it's just a wave. And then you meet another scientist of equal reputation, he tells you it's not a wave at all, but it's actually particles of matter. And the startling thing is that man, acting on both of these definitions... These great principles, they've been able to make remarkable inventions today. Now, some tell us that both are true, yet they tell you both cannot be true. Well, I don't know what light is. Is light the absence of darkness? And is darkness the absence of light? Well, the room is filled with light. What do you mean? 
Well, you say that you're in the light. Do you weigh any more because you are? And there's no such thing as color without light. And actually, a red rose is not really red because it is absorbed every other part of light except red. And that's the reason we see red. That is in the rose. Now, a child may not understand light, but he knows enough about it to come into a dark room and turn on the switch and play in it. And the Lord Jesus Christ is light. He's spiritual light. Just as the sun is physical light, he's spiritual light. And all the light that this poor world enjoys physically comes from the sun, and all the spiritual light that this poor world gets comes from Jesus Christ. And just as a little child can have enough sense to get into the presence of light. Any sinner today, though he be a fool and a wayfaring man, can come into the presence of Jesus Christ. Now, there are those that today deny that Christ is the light of the world. Well, they're walking in a lesser light. And after all, the moon has no light of its own. It's derived light, reflected light, and it comes from the sun. This civilization that you and I live in today owes everything to Christ. The hospitals, the charities, the orphans' home, the consideration of the poor, the rights of labor. You hear all of these mentioned today. And you know why we're having the problem we are? Because we've got too far from the light. The world is just walking in moonlight today, and they're doing a lot of moonlighting, by the way. We are to walk in the light of which the Lord Jesus is. Now, this is a tremendous claim he's making. And he says here, "...he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness." There are those that have attempted to say that Christ is the headlights on the car and we're to get in the car. I don't think that's the illustration here. The illustration is this. That's the pillar of fire in the wilderness that led Israel. And we are to follow him in that sense. We're to look to him as the light of the world. Now, notice what the Pharisees said to this. We have here this altercation between the two, and there's a sharp conflict now between the religious rulers and Christ. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself, thy record is not true. What if they're really saying? You're boasting. That's what you're doing when you say you're light. Now, notice, the Lord Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. He gives here a threefold reason why his testimony, the testimony of Christ, is true. First of all, he says here, I know whence I came. In other words, I know where I came from, and uh, I know myself. And, by the way, these folk that can tell you what happened on this earth a million years ago, Ask them where they were a hundred years ago. They don't know where they came from. Man doesn't know where he came from, you see. The Lord Jesus said, I know whence I came and whether I go, but she cannot tell whence I come and whether I go. That's the first reason. The second is, he says, ye judge after the flesh, I judge no man. That is, they judge according to the flesh. And what he's saying is he does not judge man according to the flesh. A great many people today talk about when they come up in the presence of God and what he's going to say and what he's going to say to others. My friend, most of this type of talk reveals the flesh. 
It's what the fleshly man thinks he's going to say. You don't know what he's going to say. And that's what he's saying here. But he says this, you judge according to the flesh, I don't. Your judgment is a fleshly judgment and therefore limited. And that's the reason, friends, even what is known today as science, for instance, evolution, it's nothing in the world but speculation. They have very fragmentary facts to go by, and it's speculation. So that you are put in one or two categories. Either you have to accept speculation or revelation. Which do you take? If you judge according to the flesh, well, you'll naturally follow evolution. You'll want some explanation for the origin of things, and that'll satisfy you. But the Lord Jesus does not judge according to the flesh. It's not speculation. That's the thing that he's trying to say here. Now, the third reason that he gives that his testimony is true, notice what he says. It's also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. Now, he says, I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. And that voice out of heaven on two occasions bore witness to him. And these are the three reasons that are given here, by the way. And these reasons actually are true. Now will you notice verse 19, Then said they unto him, Where is thy father? You see, again, they're reflecting on his birth. Jesus answered, Ye neither know me nor my father. That is, his heavenly father. If ye had known me, ye should have known my father also. Now, if you'll always notice that he spoke of the father as being my father in a different relationship than he's the father of you and me today through faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, he said to Mary after his resurrection, I ascend to my father and your father. We become children of God through faith in Christ. He calls him father because of his position in the Trinity. He's God the Son. And the other's God the Father. Hasn't anything in the world to do with generation or regeneration. But it has everything to do with the position in the Trinity. Now, they raise the question, where's thy father? And he says, why, you don't know me, and you don't know my father. If you'd known me, you should have known my father also. And if you're to know God, you'll have to come, of course, through Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to hit high points through this discourse here. And this is verse 21. Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way, and ye shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, ye cannot come. Then said the Jews, Will he kill himself? Now, you'll notice how much they were in the dark here, the questions they asked. The first question in verse 19, where is thy father? Now the question is, will he kill himself? They know nothing about the fact that he's been instructing his own that he's going to Jerusalem to die at the hands of the Gentiles. He'll be delivered by these same religious rulers, and he'll die a redemptive death for the sins of the world. So the question is, will he kill himself? And the answer, no, he'll give himself a ransom for many. 
And he says, Whither I go, ye cannot come. And he said unto them, Ye are from beneath. I am from above. Ye are of the world. I am not of the world. Now, that is something that they missed altogether. You have that same thing over in the 15th chapter of First Corinthians, by the way, where you will find Paul there speaking of that which is earthy and that which is spiritual. The first man, he says, is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy, and as it is heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. So that today it's quite possible for the natural man to understand anything that the natural man, the earthy man, comes up with. In other words, human knowledge today can be understood by any other man who has a human nature. That is, if his IQ is high enough. But what one man can work out, another can work out also. That is for sure. But divine knowledge must be loved to be understood, and only the Spirit of God can take the things of Christ and show them unto us. That's what he's saying here. Now, verse 24, "...I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins." This is a great verse, and this answers the question today. What about those that actually have not heard? Well, ye shall die in your sins. If ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Now, they don't die, friends, because they haven't heard the gospel. They die because they're sinners. That's the reason. And that's the nature that they have. If you could teach one mud turtle to fly, and maybe he'd like it, and he'd go back down and tell the other mud turtles, you ought to learn to fly, the other mud turtle says, you go chase yourself. We like it down here in the mud. This is where we want to be. Somebody says, well, isn't it terrible about those poor mud turtles that can't fly? They're right where they want to be. You shall die in your sins because that's what you want. The pigs stay in the pig pen. Sons always say, I'll arise and go to my father's house. They have to because they have the nature of the father. Now, will you notice, then said they unto him, who art thou? Notice the questions. Where is thy father? Will he kill himself? Who art thou? Now, they did not know what his mission was, his work was, and they did not know him. And they very frankly asked the question, Who art thou? And Jesus saith unto them, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. He's made this statement concerning himself, that he is the Messiah, he is the Savior. Now he says, I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. Our Lord always said what he was doing and what he said was because that was what the Father wanted him to do. He never appealed to his own mind or his own intellect. He always said he was doing the will of the Father. And that ought to be something good for these young preachers today who like to appear very intelligent. May I say to you, it's the simple gospel that's important to give out today. Always put the cookies on the bottom shelf where the kiddies can get them. And the Lord said, feed my sheep. He never did say, feed my giraffes. Now, will you notice, 
They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. You see, they miss the whole point. Why? They're of the earth. They're from beneath. They're of the world. That's the reason. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. Now, many of the priests, many of these men believed, by the way, after his death and resurrection. We're told in the book of Acts that many of the priests in Jerusalem believed. The thing he's saying to them right here, you won't know this. You see, it's the redemptive death of Christ that explains him, why he came and who he is. There are those that say, well, you don't have to believe in the virgin birth to be saved. My friend, if you're saved, you'll believe in the virgin birth. Let's put it like that. Because you will not know who he is till you know what he's done. Now, and he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. Now, there was some there that believed. As he spake these words, many believed on him. I think some of these were genuine. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. In other words, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. It'll produce something. In other words, you will continue in my word. Now, when I find today, and I found out as a pastor, that the man or woman, I don't care how active he is in a church, if he's not interested in the study of the Word of God and what God says, you watch out for him. He's a dangerous saint, by the way, and you'll do well to watch him, because that's the real test. You continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, the truth shall make you free. And what is it? Well, the truth that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that he's who he said he is, and this is what makes you free. They answered him, we be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. And may I say they lied when they said that. They'd been in bondage in Egypt. They'd been in bondage in Babylon, and they were right then under the iron heel of Rome. My, how they misrepresented even at that time. Our Lord went on to say in verse 36, If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. And this is a very wonderful statement, by the way. I asked a hippie-type fellow up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and by the way, a group of them up there listened to our tapes and our program. And this fellow told me, in fact, I asked him why he dressed as he did. He said, well, he wanted to show he's free. And I said to him, suppose you took off your garments that you're wearing and you put back on the regular garments that the average person wears, would you be accepted in your group? He said, no, I wouldn't. Well, I said, then you're not free, are you? You have to conform to your group. I said, if you really want to know what freedom is in this world where Jesus Christ is rejected, you can come to him and accept him, and he'll make you free, deliver you from sin, from the penalty of sin, and actually the power of sin, and someday the presence of sin. Now he says, I know that you're Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me, because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you've seen with your father. Now they claim Abraham is our father. We're Abraham's children. 
But he says, why are you seeking to kill me? And they said, why, something must be wrong with you. We're not seeking to kill you. And they were plotting at the very time. Now he says in verse 44, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Now, this ought to answer the question about the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. Now, when anyone says today that Jesus taught the universal fatherhood of God, apparently he didn't, because he said of these religious rulers that you are of your father the devil. And apparently they weren't children of God, and there are quite a few today. I believe that this doctrine of the universal fatherhood of God, universal brotherhood of man, has got us into a lot of trouble, even as a nation today. We sit down at a conference table with probably children of the devil, and we call them children of God. And we've been taken in all over the world today as a nation, and we're supposed to have such wise diplomats. But after all, they're smart politicians but they just simply are working on the wrong premise. And the Bible does not teach the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. There are some that are children of the devil, and you only become a son of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I tell you, this really antagonized these, and what I've just said will antagonize a lot of folk, because they don't like that today. They like to think we're all nice, sweet brothers, and we have all this lovey-dovey stuff going on today. My friend, if you're standing for the truth today, you're going to do what the Lord Jesus did here. You'll denounce that which is evil and that which is wrong and that which is error. That's exactly what he's doing. Now, they even accuse him. They say, Thou art a Samaritan and hast a demon. Jesus answered, I have not a demon, but I honor my Father, and ye do dishonor him. And I seek not mine own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. Verily I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Now, as we come to this ninth chapter, it normally and logically follows chapter 8. In chapter 8, we open with the woman taken in adultery, and then the Lord Jesus gave that discourse, I'm the light of the world. Now, logically, this story of the blind man follows along in this wonderful statement. He says, I'm the light of the world. Now we have a blind man that comes before us, and our Lord restores his sight. Obviously, the ninth chapter took place chronologically sometime after the events of chapter 8, because that chapter closed like this. Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself, went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Now, I consider this a miracle here. My judgment that this is a definite record of a miracle, I think, for him to get out of that mob was certainly miraculous. And so it wasn't time for them to lay hands on him. They thought he blasphemed because he said, Before Abraham was, I am. He is the great I am of the Old Testament. He is Jehovah. 
And that was a tremendous claim. And if it wasn't accurate, he did blaspheme. But since it is accurate, he did not blaspheme. Now, chapter 9 opens, and as Jesus passed by. Now, you would assume that it was the same incident, but I don't think so. I think this happened sometime afterward, because it's done in a more leisurely manner than the events of chapter 8. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. Now, we're not able to date it. And the last chapter, last verse, they would have stoned him. But now he saw a man which was blind from his birth. Now, this is the only record of our Lord healing a man of a congenital disease. There are other, I think, unique features about this incident which earmark it as unusual, and we'll note them, I think, as we come to them. First of all, it's interesting to note who's blind here and who's not. Jesus saw. That is interesting. He saw. The Lord saw. And his disciples also saw the blind man. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, they were attempting to establish what was the cause of his disease. What was back of it? Well, may I say to you, they are wanting to argue about who sinned. Is it the man's fault or is it his parents' fault? Well, let me say something about blindness. And I personally consider blindness the most unfortunate loss that can come to an individual. I'd rather lose the use of any other sense than my eyes. Someone has put it like this, I complained of the light shining in my eyes until I heard the sound of a blind man's cane on the pavement. But I wonder if you've ever observed how cheerful so many blind folk are, especially those who are Christians. We get many letters from blind folk who listen to this program. And very frankly, the most cheerful letters that I get and the most encouraging come from blind folk. And we'll find in this incident that there is something, by the way, worse than being blind physically. Spiritual blindness is worse. Now, is the blindness therefore here the result of the sin of the parents? Oftentimes it is. A large percentage of folk that are blind are because of sin. I was asked by a doctor friend in Nashville one time to go with him out to the general hospital to watch him perform an operation on the eyes of some children that were blind and with the idea that he hoped to restore partial sight to them. And I asked him the cause of it. Well, he says, the Bible says that could be the parents' fault. And in this case, he says it is the parents' fault, the sin of the parents. It's not always true, of course. And actually, it was not the man's fault always. Sometimes it's due to an accident, and sometimes it's because of something else that has happened that 
You couldn't say it's the sin of the man or the sin of the parents. Now, our Lord answered this in a rather unusual way. And he said, Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sin, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Now, I think, frankly, that we need to understand our Lord is not saying for one minute that this man was sort of a spiritual guinea pig. And I have only one satisfactory explanation for it, and I think it's in the punctuation of the text. I think here this chapter division makes it a little difficult. Let me look at it like this and see if this might not be helpful to you. Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents. Now, period. But that the works of God should be made manifest in him, we must work the works of him that sent me, while it's day, the night cometh, when no man can work. Now, will you notice what our Lord is actually saying? Christ said that the important thing is not to probe around and try to find out who's guilty. It's not a question of whether it's parents or whether it's this man's fault. The thing to do is to cure the man, do something for him. In other words, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. It may be true, But after a man is sick, it's pretty important to get that pound of cure for him. And I heard of a case back east where a man was taken to a hospital. He'd been in an accident, and he was kept waiting until they could fill out a chart about him, who he was and all that sort of thing, and who's going to pay the bill. And by that time, the poor fellow was just about dead, and they took him down the street to another hospital. May I say to you that it's exactly what our Lord is saying here. He said, now, let's don't spend our time here filling out a report of why this man's in the condition that he is. Let's do something for the man. Let's do something for him. Now, he says, I must work the works of him that sent me while it's day, because the night cometh when no man can work. Now, revert back to the original statement of Christ. I am the light of the world. Now, he says, the night time makes all of us blind. We cannot see. No one can. Now, Christ is the spiritual light of the world. And without him, friends, we'd be blind. And without him today, multitudes are blind. They can't see at all spiritually. He's the light of the world. He says here, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And he's in the world. He says, I'm coming to you and in the Holy Spirit today. And friends, I say this to you kindly, but you'll be blind as a bat unless the Spirit of God opens your spiritual eyes to see. Now, will you notice? He says in verse 6, when he had thus spoken... He spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle. He anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Now, there are men today that stand in the presence of Christ who are still blind. They cannot see. Now, this blind man was so. Christ had to touch him. And the man had to obey Christ. Now, Christ must touch our spiritual vision. He must bring 
new life to the dead spiritual optic nerve. And it's not a question of who sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, let's let Christ touch our eyes. And friends, if he hasn't touched your eyes, you're not seeing. There's so many people today right in our churches that are blind and don't know it, not saved. We have that happen constantly. I've had it in my ministry and now on radio. Some people said, well, I listened to you for three months. And all of a sudden, my eyes were open and I saw. The story is told that years ago over here in West Virginia that there was an explosion in the mine. And the miners were in darkness there. They were cut off. There had been this explosion in the cave-in. Nobody could get to them. And finally, why they were able to dig through to them, and they, of course, first thing they did was connect up the light. And when they turned on the light, it was a powerful bulb. One of the young miners there, he said, after the light came on, he says, why doesn't someone turn on the light? And all of the men looked at him startled because they knew the explosion had blinded him. He was not seeing. There are a great many people today stand right in the presence of Christ and say, turn on the light. Well, isn't that exactly what old Pilate did? He said, what's truth? And he's standing in the presence of the one who says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We need to let Christ touch our eyes so that we can see. And notice how he did this for the man here. He spat on the ground. He made clay of the spittle. He anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. And he went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. Actually, the man, by this method, had not seen the Lord Jesus. Our Lord had him go through this ritual. You see, it's a matter, actually, of having Christ touch us and of obeying Christ. I was talking to a man up here in Altadena many years ago, and he came to church, and I went by to visit him, and he went on to say, said, Now I enjoyed your message. I thought that presentation was very fine. But he said, Now let me tell you what I think about the basis on which God will accept you. Well, I'll be honest with you. I got that man off that kick in a hurry. I said, wait a minute. It doesn't make any difference what you think, and it actually makes no difference what I think. It's a question of what Christ thinks and what he says and whether we hear him and obey him. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Now, this man... He's healed, and he did it in an unusual way. He touched the eye of the man, and there was another time when he just spoke the word. Another time he healed, and man wasn't even present. You see, the method is non-essential. There must be the power of God. Can you imagine these folk whom Jesus healed getting together, the lame and the blind, and one of these fellows that... Well, that the Lord had touched him. He says, Christ must touch you. That's important. You must have an experience, you see. And he went away saying, the touch of his hand on mine. And then there was this other fellow. He's a non-toucher. 
always said, you don't have to have an experience. He doesn't need to touch you. He must not be present. All he has to do is speak the word. And he went away singing, only believe. And that's fine. Both of them singing a good song. And then here is this fellow here. Oh, he said, both you fellows are wrong. You not only got to be present, but he's got to touch you. But not only touch you, but he has to anoint you. And you got to go down and wash in the pool of Bethesda, or the pool of Siloam. And this fellow, he's the one that went away singing, Shall we gather at the river? Well, now you say to me, well, that's perfectly absurd. That's silly. That's ridiculous. It sure is, but I know a lot of blind folk today who will argue about a ceremony and argue this question about an experience. And the all-important thing is to have come to Christ, believed Him, and to obey Him. That is the thing that is important. And to trust Him. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. And it's to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And these methods, well, they just don't seem to be too important after all. Now we read here that the neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him, that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He's like him. But he said, I'm he. So you got three opinions here concerning the man. Some said he's like him, but he's not the same man. He just sort of looks like him. That's pretty ridiculous in and of itself, don't you think? And we find some think it is the man. A great change had taken place. And you know what the change was? Not so much in his looks, but he's able to see. And they just couldn't believe it was that man. And the man, though, identified himself. He said, I'm the one. Therefore said they unto him, How are thine eyes open? He answered and said, and this is his simple testimony, A man that's called Jesus, made clay, anointed mine eyes, and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. I went and washed and received sight. And friends, it's just as simple as that. You see that salvation is really a simple matter. It's a matter of just coming to the Lord Jesus and experiencing the power of God. We need the power of God today. And all of these methods that I hear, and you have to do this, that, and the other thing, they're so non-essential. Now, the thing here is, Then said they unto him, Where is he? He said, I know not. Up to this statement, he hadn't even seen Jesus. And yet the Lord Jesus had opened his eyes. And the important thing was actually not to see Jesus, but to believe in him, you see. That was the important thing. And here's another group, though. Notice the reaction on them. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. It was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again, the Pharisees also asked him how he'd received his sight. He said unto them, he put clay upon mine eyes. And I washed and do see. Again, it's pretty simple. And you would think that they would have rejoiced. Why, my friend, even if these were cold-blooded church members, they should have been willing now to sing the hallelujah chorus, but not this crowd. And notice the reaction of the Pharisees. They don't know what to do with a man born blind that's walking around seeing. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, 
This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Now, can you imagine that? You're aghast at such a reaction. And yet, friends, you find controversies today in our churches and arguments about non-essentials, and the world outside is dying and going to hell, blind to the gospel. My, they still do the same thing. He doesn't keep the Sabbath day. He doesn't do it our way. Others said, how can a man that's a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. They're really confused. And they made it a Sabbath question, a religious question, which it should not have been. Now they say unto the blind man again, What sayest thou of him, that he hath opened thine eyes? He said he's a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him, that he had been blind and received his sight, until they called the parents of him that received his sight. You know, when men don't want to believe a thing, when they do want to really cause confusion and difficulty, it's amazing the little peccadilloes that they will attempt to dig up to really get away from the truth. And now will you notice this blind man is beginning to get his eyes open. He says he's a prophet. <laughs> and they won't accept that. And they call the parents. And they ask them, saying, Is this your son, who ye say was born blind? How then doth he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him, he'll speak for himself. Now, it was absolutely impossible for the religious rulers to deny a miracle had taken place. They asked the parents now to try to pull them out of this difficulty. And it's so easy today to sit in a swivel chair in some musty library in this country, far removed from the scene and the time, far removed from reality, and write a book and deny the miracles of Christ. But they didn't deny them in that day. And the parents, you see, have a great fear, and they are afraid of being excommunicated. So they won't commit themselves. They say, he's our son. He was born blind. He sees. That's all we can tell you. We don't know how it came about, but this is it. They were afraid of excommunication. Now, verse 22, These words spake his parents, because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. And I think this religious conniving, and you see it in churches today, is one of the most pernicious things that is imaginable. Instead of meeting together, to pray about getting the Word of God out and to support those that are getting it out. And they meet with the idea of actually hindering the getting out of the Word of God. How tragic that is. And these parents, they want it off the hook. And the religious rulers are trying to find somebody that they can hang this on. Now, the important thing to note here is, is that actually the religious rulers found themselves in a very tight spot. They were forced to admit, finally, that his eyes had been opened. His parents testified that he is born blind, and they testified that this man was their son, and that now he's able to see. But how, they are not prepared 
to explain that. They knew that would get them in trouble. And so the religious rulers now attempt to change the miracle, not from being a miracle, but from the Lord Jesus receiving credit for it. Now notice in verse 24, "...then again called they the man that was blind, and said unto him, Give God the praise, we know that this man is a sinner." Now they just come right out in the open now, and they say, Look, all right, you were born blind. A miracle has been performed. And do not give this man credit. That is, the Lord Jesus. He's a sinner. They're wrong there. Give God the glory. You see how pious they can be about a thing like that. They wanted to bypass the Lord Jesus in this particular incident. Now, notice what the man says. Actually, the poor fellow, this is the second time they've hailed him into court. And this is something I think he's just a little weary of. And notice his answer. He answered and said, "...whether he be a sinner or no, I know not." The point is, he hasn't yet met the Lord Jesus, you see. And he hasn't yet seen him. And he's going to have that opportunity in just a few moments. But so far, he hasn't seen him. But he has a testimony, and his testimony is this. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. That's the testimony of this man. And this is the testimony of any sinner who has been saved. Once I was blind, now I see. Once I was in spiritual darkness, now I'm in spiritual light. Once I did not know Christ, now I know him as my Savior. You see, this is very simple indeed, but very important, if you please. And we're apt to miss such a simple statement as this. Once I was blind, now I see. And that, my friend, is a wonderful thing to be able to do, is to be able to say, once I was blind, now I see. I hear today these long-winded testimonies. I don't know about you, I get a little weary of them sometime. I think many of them are padded and embellished and polished up and made very attractive. I remember that when I was a pastor in Los Angeles that we had a man that came forward one night. And it was found out that he was what would be called today in the common parlance of the street. He would be called a cheap gambler or a cheap crook, if you please. And he came forward, he accepted Christ. And he was immediately picked up by an evangelist, and he gave a testimony in a meeting. And then later on, we had him give a testimony at the church. And his testimony was a very, I thought, sane testimony. And then it was about two years later, I was back east. And somebody said, "'My, have you heard the testimony of so-and-so?' And I said, "'Yes.'" Oh. What a remarkable testimony this man has. Never heard anything like it. Oh, it's great. Well, I said, I never thought it was that outstanding. 
And this party says, well, he's going to give it at a certain time in the meeting, and I want you to be there and hear it. So I came and heard it. Frankly, it looked like the same fellow, but his testimony wasn't the same testimony. Do you know what he'd become in the meantime? He was the leader of a gang of gangsters. In fact, he was the leading one. And he was really outstanding. He'd rubbed shoulders with all the great ones. And then they were after him because the opposite gang, I guess it was, they wanted to kill him. And he just slipped into the church that night. That sounds good, doesn't it? And he heard the gospel and accepted Christ. Now, very frankly, I'm not sure the man really was converted from what happened after that, but be that as it may, well, let's give him credit for having been converted. Actually, he should have boiled his testimony down and been able to say, once I was blind, now I see. That's the important thing. That's the nub of any testimony that I want to hear. You once was blind, now you can see. That's the important thing. Now, let me read verse 26. Then said they to him again, What did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? See, they are hard put to it. They are trying their best to find some little flaw that they can seize on to explain away the miracle that's been performed. Of course, if these religious rulers live today, all they'd have to do is to go to an average seminary, and they'd find out some very clever ways to explain away the miracles of Jesus. But you see, they were not in that very advantageous spot in the day in which they lived. They had a man on their hands who had been blind. Now he can see. And when you've got a man on your hands like that, you have to come up with some explanation. So may I say that probably we ought not be so hard on these fellows because they are hard put to it to come up with an answer. Now they want to know how it was done. He answered them, I've told you already, and ye did not hear. Wherefore would ye hear it again? Will ye also be his disciples? I think he's being a little sarcastic here. He says, is the reason you want to hear it so you can become his disciple? And of course, that's not it. They want to become the very opposite, which they were. Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses, as for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. You see, they'd ask him that question. He'd told them they had not accepted it. They actually didn't hear. They not only are blind, they can't see. They are deaf, they can't hear. The man answered and said unto them, Why? Herein is a marvelous thing, that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. In other words, as religious leaders, they are the ones that should have accepted him and actually have put him forward and have been his publicity agents. Instead of that, they're attempting to put him to death, actually. Now... Let me read verse 31. Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? 
In other words, this was a remarkable miracle. A man born blind, he's been made to see. And this man's logic is very good, but he's acting on the knowledge that he has. He has not yet met the Lord Jesus, that is, that he could see him. When he came to him before, he was blind, and our Lord sent him away to wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, will you notice the logic of the man? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. That, my friend, is rather unanswerable. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? You see, now they do what men do when they can't meet an argument, or they do not have a satisfactory explanation of that which is around them, and the facts not only confound them, but contradict them. Well, what do they do? Well, they cast him out. They were angry, and they cast this man out. That means they excommunicated him. And this actually was an awful thing in that day. That means he was shut out of the temple. He was shut out of business, frankly. And the man was an outcast. He just the same as being a leper, because he's shut out of everything that is religious and everything that is social. Notice what happens now. The Lord Jesus comes on the scene. This man has defended the Lord Jesus, and he's come out the winner so far. But he's been excommunicated, and it's at a time like this that the Lord Jesus comes to him. And notice what he does. And this is quite wonderful here when the Lord comes to him. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? Now, you see, this man to be saved is going to have to put his faith in the Son of God. He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? You see, the Lord has prepared this man all along. All this was done to prepare him. When he confronted the religious rulers and they said what they did to him, why, he defended the Lord Jesus. And actually, in so doing, his own faith was strengthened and he could think more clearly about it. Now, having gone through that step, our Lord now comes in his presence and says, will you believe on the Son of God? And he's very open, very honest, and very sincere. And he says, well, who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And the very interesting thing is, you see the eagerness of this man to want to go further. He wants to come to know him. And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. Now, you see, what he's saying to him is just simply this. You now are able to see him, and now he's talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Here is one of the finest instances of faith that we have in the entire Word of God. This man born blind and the steps that he took coming to the Lord Jesus. Now, our Lord took this blind man step by step and brought him to his feet where he could say, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. 
And so the steps of the sinner today, we're blind at first. Not only sinners lost, we don't even see our condition. We don't see our lost condition. Then we come to Christ. And the question now is, when we see him and our eyes are open, we see who he is. Now we also know what he's done for us. And the question is, will you believe? And the answer this man gave, and it'll have to be our answer if we're saved, Lord, I believe. And then the next step, he worshiped him. Now listen to the Lord Jesus, verse 39. And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. Now this is a very strange statement, and I'm sure that many of you agree with that. You say, well, I can understand when he says I'm coming to this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he means simply this, that there are those that have eyes and they see not. That is, they have physical eyes, they see things physically, but they don't see these things spiritually. And the natural man, we are told, Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Actually, those things are foolishness unto him, and neither can he know them. Why? Well, because they are spiritually discerned. They are foolishness to him. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. And again, let me come back to the illustration that I used about this man that was down in the darkness of the mine at the time of the explosion. And when they turned the lights on, the man just spoke out. He says, why don't they turn the lights on? And the light was shining right in his eyes. And the other man was startled. These miners looked at him. They saw he was blind. The explosion had blinded him. Now, what the Lord Jesus is simply saying is that, that when you come into the presence of Christ and you still say, I don't see, or say as Pilate did, what is truth? I say this to you very candidly, and if I may use again another common colloquialism, my friend, if you can come into the presence of Christ and say, what is truth? And if you can come into the presence of Christ and say, well, I just don't quite get it. I don't see that he's my Savior. Then, my friend, you've had it. You've had it. You have had an opportunity. And you have revealed the fact, though, that you have eyes, you are not seeing at all. Now, that is actually the real difference between the heathen that have never heard the gospel. They're in darkness. And their blindness is not really seen. Now, when the light is put on, if there's someone there that can see and will see as this blind man, then, may I say, the Lord Jesus is going to get in his presence. Because did you notice that the Lord Jesus waited until he had gone through this series of steps, and then he came into his presence? And if there's a man today that wants to know him out yonder, 
in heathenism. The Lord will get the gospel to him. I can assure you that. The gospel will get to him. But the heathen are lost. They're in darkness. But the difference between them and the man who sits in a pew in a church today where there is a preacher who is preaching the Word of God and giving out the gospel. Now, that man is in the presence of light, and it's definitely revealed that he's blind. And if the darkness or if the light in you, the Lord Jesus put it like that, if the light in you be darkness, how great is that darkness? That is, if the light right in front of you, you still say it's dark. Though you've heard about Jesus Christ, I say it again, you've had it. <laughs> That's all I can say to you. You've had it, friends. Nothing else to tell you about because you've been brought into the presence of the Savior of the world. Now, will you notice verse 40? And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? We began with a blind man. We end with blind religious leaders. They were blind, spiritually blind. And it's terrible, tragic to be spiritually blind. And yet the blind are everywhere today, only they don't carry a white walking stick. Verse 41, Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, We see, therefore your sin remaineth. In other words, in the presence of Christ, in the presence of the light, in presence of the revelation of God, they are saying, we have no sin. That means they're blind as a bat spiritually. But the thing is, they say that they're seeing. And you know, the most dogmatic people in the world, they talk about me being dogmatic as a fundamentalist. I want to tell you, the cultists and the atheists today... Those that I meet are the most dogmatic persons in the world. They say they see, but they don't see. They're spiritually blind. They've rejected Jesus Christ. Their sin remaineth. Friends, this is very clear, is it not? Unless you're blind. And I trust today that if you have rejected Jesus Christ or never accepted him, you'll open your heart and mind to receive him.